The scripture reading today is from Psalm 82, verses 1 to 8. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. This is the word of the Lord. I feel like because I've been moving around maybe more than usual that I'm getting encroached upon by the, the worship team. Is that, is that a symbol or a sign that I'm supposed to pick up on? Uh, stop moving around. Um, guys, it's great to, to see you this morning. I'll ask that you um, join me in a word of prayer as we prepare to hear from the word of God. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for your word. Lord, and thank you for this opportunity that we have together this morning to come before you, our holy God, our Savior, our Redeemer, to lift up high the name of Jesus, to remember our salvation in him, to rejoice that you give mercy to sinners like us. Lord, to delight that you are at work right now, working your new creation in our hearts as we see and behold Jesus. Father, I pray that the rest of our time and our time in your word right now, that we would see and behold Jesus, that we would see and behold you and that our hearts would be lifted up off of every false God and false thing that we could be living for and worshiping, and that we would be refocused upon you. And would you change us, become more like Christ Jesus? Would you be glorified in our midst? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Christ City, it's often been said that you are what you eat, right? It's also said, and I think also true, that you are what you love. You are what you love. We can see the way that the things that we love in our lives can work on our souls and form us to be certain kinds of people in this world. Let me give you a few examples. If you love power, for example, and if power is the thing that you are organizing your life around seeking to attain, it's your dream, it's your goal, you can become a person that's shaped by that love, becoming cruel and oppressive to those around you who get in your way. If what you love is wealth, you can become greedy, become full of avarice, an old word for greed, and you can hurt the ones around you as you pursue the object of your desires. The great example, of course, in, in ancient history is the story of King Midas, the Midas Touch. Right, who has the, this touch for whatever he touches turns to gold, and it was a symbol of his wealth, but also of his greed. And the story ends with him touching his daughter and losing what he really should have been treasuring. If you love comfort, you can become selfish. 
You can become someone who, I love my comfort so much, I'm now unwilling to entertain any discomfort in my life for the sake of other people. My comfort's too dear to me. I won't step out. If you love respect, you can be someone who becomes quite arrogant and demands respect from other people. I I really can't countenance or can't look upon anyone else unless they respect me for who I really am. If you love approval, on the other hand, you might constantly change your opinions and your lifestyle and whatever your actions are in life because you're always just trying to gain the approval of other people. Love me, love me, love me, love me. You become a suck up. If you love food, well, you'll see the results. If you love private entertainment, you'll become isolated and withdrawn as you pursue all of your satisfaction on your own. If you love success, well, often you'll love yourself and others based on merit. This is a classic situation where, where the kid can't win their parents' approval unless they perform well enough in sports or in music or in academics. You might not think of yourself this morning as worshiping these things, but the reality is that the thing that you love most in life is the thing that you worship. What you love most is the thing that you worship, how your heart is formed to want this thing. That's the thing that you are worshiping. We all love and we all worship and we all are becoming like what we worship. And in a world that's full of injustice and oppression, in a world where, I mean, if you've been paying any attention to what's happening in the world the last two weeks, this is a broken and horribly flawed world full of incredible injustice. In this world, the question we need to ask ourselves is this, what are we worshiping? And what sorts of people are we becoming because of what we worship? Are we becoming virtuous people, living in righteousness and justice in this world, or are we becoming something else? This morning, as we look at Psalm 82, we're going to see that the gods that we worship are on trial. Psalm 82 depicts the gods that that the human heart worships on trial before the God of the Bible, before Yahweh. And in this psalm, it's my prayer that you'll see hope, that even though it's, it's a judgment psalm, that you'll see in it hope, the hope that there is a better God to worship than maybe the gods that you've put in your life. A God who actually gives hope of change, of transformation, that you can become a different sort of person in this world because you've seen him. You love him. You're living for him. So our outline this morning is this. We're going to look at injustice, judgment, and hope. So look at verse 1 in our first point, injustice. The psalmist Asaph, he begins this way. He says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. God has taken his place in the midst of the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Just stop and look at that. Does that verse strike you? Maybe it isn't the, the kind of verse you were expecting to read when you first woke up this morning to come uh, to the worship gathering. You might be looking at it and thinking, this is quite strange. I thought the God in the Bible was just one God. And here all of a sudden we have this psalm talking about a divine council in the midst of the gods. Like, what's, what's going on here? This is very confusing. What's going on here is this. The psalmist Asaph, so he's the one who, who wrote this psalm, he wrote Psalm 73 uh, to 83. What he's doing is he's picking up a familiar cultural 
image, and he's using it to critique the false worship and the injustice of God's people. So let me say that again. He's taking this cultural image that was familiar at the time, and he's using that image to critique this false worship and this injustice that he sees happening amongst his own people, the people of God. And if that sounds a little strange to you, we actually have things that function this way in our own English culture. So think back to the story of Robin Hood, right? Robin Hood is more than cute Disney animals and archery tournaments. Uh, There's a lot more than that going on in the story of Robin Hood, or I should say the stories of Robin Hood. Because there are innumerable Robin Hood stories that have been used and told throughout history. But what they all have in common is that the way that they tell this, this narrative that is actually a critique of the broader culture, particularly a critique against tyranny and oppression of the poor. It's a story used to critique what was happening in society. And in a similar way, what Asaph is doing is using that story that's familiar to this ancient people, the story of the divine courtroom, and using it to critique what's happening in their culture. The story of the divine courtroom that we see in verse 1, it came from Israelites' neighbors. They're the Canaanite people. And they believed that there was this god, El, who was the chief of the gods, the head of the gods. And he had his divine entourage, these other lowercase deities that, that he stood in judgment over, that he was the one who was in control of these guys. And Asaph takes this familiar story, but he appropriates it and turns it on its head, right? So what he does, he doesn't have El as the chief of the god. He takes this idea and says, no, 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 Yahweh is the head of the gods. Yahweh is the God of Israel. Yahweh is the one who is now coming into the divine courtroom. He's carrying his gavel in his hand and he is about to render judgment on all the false gods of the world. And this judgment is a significant thing in the culture that Asaph came from. Because at the time when Asaph was writing, people believed that the gods, that they exercised their rule and localities over this earth. So you have to imagine a whole bunch of different gods and imagine a map. For the ancient peoples, they would have thought of that map, uh, maybe like Google, Google Map or Google, Google Images in your, in your minds and get those country parameters or maybe even neighborhood parameters, Kitsilano, East Vancouver, downtown. And then imagine all those places with like a little figurine over them. All right, here we serve this god. Here we serve this God. Here we serve this God. And each place has a God that's over it that is ruling over that place. And the idea was that the God was supposed to exercise his rule for the mediation of the kings of that place so that the peoples would begin to follow that God that they would look like in their behavior, the laws and the character of the God that was over them. So you can imagine for the ancient peoples, you know, if they had this dog, Dagon is one of the gods of the Philistines. He was ruling over this area through their kings. And the people then were supposed to live out his laws and his character and be seen to look like him. What was going on and what Asaph was criticizing was that God's children, the people of Israel, they were supposed to look like Yahweh. They're supposed to look like Yahweh, the God of Israel. And their king was supposed to mediate that rule of Yahweh and and implement all of Yahweh's laws so that justice and righteousness happened in that society. And what happened, though, was not that the people looked like Yahweh. They didn't look anything like him. And Asaph is saying, you guys don't look like Yahweh. You look like the false gods that you are worshiping. 
Now we could ask this question. If Asaph then is concerned about idolatry and injustice, that's what he's really concerned about. Like why this roundabout way of getting at it? You know, like why didn't he just write an essay and say, look guys, you're worshiping false gods. Enough. You know, you're, you're full of injustice. Stop it. Why does he tell the story this way? Well, he tells the story this way because sometimes there's nothing like a good lyric to critique culture. Isn't that true? Think of some of the, the famous protest songs of our age. Or think of CCR's Fortunate Son. Right? Or think of Sam Cooke, uh, A Change is Gonna Come. Or maybe if you're into, uh, you know, the 90s, think of Rage Against the Machine and Bulls, uh, Bulls on Parade or something like that. Right? That sometimes a, a lyric, this powerful image, that song that's put in poetry, it speaks even louder than if you just wrote an essay about something. And that's what Asaph is doing here. And rather than a rock anthem or a protest song, Asaph says, you know what's going on here? His God has taken his place in the divine council. God, Yahweh has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, it's Yahweh who holds judgment. And what does he say? What does Yahweh say? Well, two things. He calls out the injustice of the gods and he commands them to do justice. Look at verses two to four. There we read this. How long will you judge unjustly? How long will you show partiality to the wicked, Selah? He's calling out all the evil that they are doing. And then he says, pause at what they should be doing. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. What Asaph wants us to see and the people of Israel to see is that the God of the Bible is uniquely and beautifully in these verses, a God of justice. He's uniquely and beautifully a God of justice. It's the character of the false gods to do these wicked things. But it's the character of the God of the Bible to give justice to the weak and the fatherless, to maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, to rescue the weak and the needy, to deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Isn't that beautiful? Just look, look at that psalm. When we read passages of scripture like this, Christ City, we're supposed to see in them the character of our God. This is the kind of God that we serve. This is what his heart is. Can you imagine being an oppressed person back in the time of Israel when Asaph was writing? Imagine this person, imagine she was in this situation, something terrible was going on. Maybe her land was being taken from her and she had no other means of, of, of caring for her family. And she comes before the judge and the judge is like, well, I know the guy that, that is really making money off your land, so I'm just going to keep favoring him. I'm not going to help you at all. There's no social net. She's suffering. She's got kids to feed. Someone like that is reading this psalm and is being encouraged that the God that she serves sees her. That Yahweh is on her side. That Yahweh is a God of compassion and kindness to the afflicted and the, and the oppressed. And he is livid with the wickedness of those who perpetuate injustice and oppression in this world. You know, I don't know if you realize this, but 
It's actually the case that God's love for justice and for righteousness, it runs like a thread from the beginning story of the Bible all the way through the end. It's this beautiful story. And actually, it's in the, the backdrop of, of the unrighteousness and injustice of this world that God calls this man named Abraham to himself in the first place in the first book of the Bible in Genesis. And he calls Abraham to himself in the context of things going so badly in this world, of injustice and unrighteousness just accelerating. The story's kind of like this. Adam and Eve, they, they think, we will find our own path to flourishing God. Thank you very much. We don't want to follow you. We'll do things our way, which is how it always begins, by the way. Looking for our own path of flourishing away from God's rule of our lives. And as they do that, they, they pitch humanity into this story of injustice and sin and unrighteousness. Their kids kill one another in the story of the Bible. And then their grandkids boast about how much more wicked and violent they are than their parents. And things spiral out of control more and more and more till you come to this place where God calls Abraham to himself. He says, I'm going to take you. And in this world of violence and oppression, I'm going to make you a different sort of people. You will love me with your whole heart, your whole soul, and your whole mind. You will obey my good commands. I'm going to show you how to live. Not according to your thinking about flourishing, but according to my ways that truly bring justice, that truly bring righteousness and goodness into this world. I'm going to make you different. You'll be merciful. You'll protect the vulnerable. You'll exercise your power and position to help the weak, all because you will be my people. You will be my people. You will follow me. I will be your God. They were supposed to be different. There's actually a striking place, one of my favorite passages that show this in the, in the narrative of the call of Abraham to be this, this head of a family and new people on earth. It's in Genesis 18. And in that chapter, Abraham and his descendants, they're set in this really sharp context and contrast. They're juxtaposed against the wickedness that's happening around them as God calls them out to be something different. Look at Genesis 18, verses 17 to 21. There, the Lord says this, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. It's a key word pair in the Bible that he would live in a different sort of way and all his kids would live in a different sort of way in this world so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And then note the contrast here between Abraham then and what follows. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. So he's looking at what he's doing in Abraham and then he's looking towards the nations to judge them. And that word outcry is an interesting word. It comes in the context of oppression in the Bible. It's the same word that was used in the lips of the people of Israel when they were in slavery in Exodus, when they were crying out to God because of the wicked rulers that were over them. And it's in this context, God's like, this is great wickedness. I'm calling you out and I'm making you different. So Christ City, here's a note for you as you read your Bibles. The Bible is full of many, many strange stories, isn't it? If you've, can I get a show of hands? Have you ever read the Old Testament and kind of gotten lost and thought this is, this is like, there's some strange things going on in here? For sure, right? And it's very strange to us. It's very distant culturally and in time from where we are, but we need to be aware of what the story is communicating. 
need to be aware of this thread of a good and a just and a righteous God who's beginning to move things in a different direction. Through his people, start a different story of his grace and his love and his mercy taking root in sinful human society. And yet, of course, 1,400 years go by after Abraham and Asaph writes this psalm. It's not turned out this way. He writes this psalm and it's wickedness and it's oppression, it's abuse. The prophets in the Bible, they tell story after story of all the horrors that were happening in Israel at this time. And Asaph calls his people to repentance. And Christ said, I think there's actually a really good moment for us to examine ourselves this morning right now. After all, just like Asaph, we want justice, don't we? We want justice in this world. We live in a world where we want to see the poor cared for and the afflicted cared for and mercy given. We want that to happen in our society. But I think we need to ask ourselves, are we like Israel? What are we worshiping? And what sorts of people are we becoming because of what is really at the center of our hearts? Can the things that we worship make us who we need to be in this world? If we care and we value these things like justice. For example, think about this. If you're living your life for wealth, right, if, that is, if that is the center of your life, are you becoming the kind of person because of your love for wealth that is able to live generously for others? And I don't mean, I don't mean like giving 20 bucks here and there when you have lots of money. You know, it's a classic, hey, you know, I want to make a ton of money so one day I can give some, you know, some money away to other people. It doesn't work like that. Is your love for wealth forming you to be the kind of person who is generous in your soul, to care for others? Think about society, actually, and our love for wealth. Does our love for wealth make us better, more caring people? Think about healthcare. Do you want to go to the physician that loves his paycheck, or do you want to go to the physician that loves his patient? Right? We want to be formed, our culture flourishes as we're formed not in the idolatry of wealth, but in love for others based in our love for God. What about sexual freedom? If sexual freedom is your God, how is that forming you as a human being? What is that making you into? Are you becoming the person who is enabled and empowered to cultivate a truly safe and loving relationship with somebody else that leads to their flourishing? Are you becoming more and more selfish and self-oriented as you pursue your own pleasure? You know, there's a great irony, right, in the, the sexual freedom of our age because all of us are going to therapy for our father and our mother wounds, right? The ways that they've been unfaithful in various ways and, and, and you know, and how it's really hurt us. And yet at the same time, are we pursuing the God who will help us to become people that will cultivate safe and loving, secure environments for our children? Or is our selfish pursuit of our sexual freedom just leading, leading to more and more of the same abuse that we're recovering from? If comfort is your God, will we sacrifice for the orphan and the foster child? Look around at Vancouver. Look at, at Canada. In Canada, 35,000 Canadians are homeless on a given night. And 18.7% of those are youth. Right? There's a beautiful way that Christians throughout history have cared for the orphan, for those that are truly vulnerable in our society. But is our love of comfort 
producing in us the kind of character that is needed to give up of ourselves to care for the needs, the most important needs of the vulnerable in society around us. If health is our God, will we love the suffering, suffering sick or will we turn away in disgust when we see disease and illness? If beauty is our God, what will we do in the face of what is ugly? Will we reject it? If, if approval is our God, will we have the courage to do what is right, even when it's hated and despised? The truth is we are what we love, just like ancient Israel. Just like ancient Israel, we are too becoming like what we worship. What is a good and loving and just and merciful God supposed to do in the face of all of this judgment or all this injustice? What he's going to do is he's going to render judgment. Look at our second point, judgment in verse 5. And see the way that he renders his judgment to the gods, yes, but by implication also to all those that are worshiping these false gods. Verse 5 says this, it starts this way. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I was thinking about this passage and thinking about the way that it's kind of describing reality, um, like, a, like a block of wood where all the, the grain and the orientation of reality runs in a certain direction and gives strength to that reality. And the way that kind of this injustice is like rot that gets into, into that reality and causes it to be unstable and to break down. And as I was thinking about that, I thought of when I was younger, I did a lot of foolish things. I've shared some of those foolish stories with you. But one of the foolish things that I liked to do was when I went hiking up in the mountains, I liked to go off the trail into the places where there were these things called widow makers and what loggers call widow makers. And what, they, what these are is that in, in BC, we live in a very moist environment, if you want to use that word. And our forests, especially the protected parts of our forests, forests that are surrounded by big mature trees or maybe by um, uh, a mountain that's in the way of direct wind, our forests will rot where they're standing. And if you get up into these places where the trees are rotting where they're standing, you get into some pretty fun situations if you're 20 years old. You can run up to these enormous trees, you know, this big around, 80 feet tall, you know, 60 feet tall, and you can kick them and run away, look where it's falling first before you run, and the whole thing will come crashing down to the ground. It's terrifying. I stopped when I almost got killed. Um, don't do it. It's not a good idea. It's, they're called widowmakers for a reason. But what, what that experience was like is, is reminding me of these verses and the way that Asaph says, in the darkness and in this sin and injustice, he says, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. Well, just like me as a youth, I guess. Um, they walk about in darkness and all the foundations of the earth are shaken. The way that reality itself begins to rot, the grain of reality decays and things get shaky in our society as injustice and as a rule of false gods is happening in our lives. It happens. And I'm wondering this morning, can you feel the shaking? Can you feel the shaking of our society? You feel the, the, the darkness of not even knowing which way the, the grain of reality is supposed to run. There's some confusion. Which path to flourishing life? Which way to flourishing life? Where am I going to go? The psalmist says, the gods, they're darkened. They don't have understanding. They can't figure it out. and They can't lead you where you want to go. And actually, as they rule your life, it will lead to more and more shaking and more and more injustice. And the reality is, 
This is not just abstract. It's not just a thought experiment. Because this injustice takes place in the lives of real human beings who cry real tears. As they cry out in this world in injustice, there is a good and a loving God who hears them. He hears their tears. In Psalm 56, it says that he catches our tears in his bottle. He's a God who judges justly and has compassion on those who suffer and mourn, and he renders his judgment. His judgment is death. Look at verses 6 to 7. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Death for who? Well, death for the false gods and that imagery that, that Asaph is using, certainly. But really, this isn't about that, that metaphorical cultural image. This, this is about real people and false worshipers. It's a death of judgment for all of us who pursue these false gods, who live that injustice in our lives. You know, the Hebrew Old Testament scholar Willem A. Van Gemeren, that's a mouthful, hey? Great Dutch name. Um, he comments and he says this about this passage. He says, condemnation of the gods here, the, the gods, lowercase gods, is a condemnation of idolatry. Idolatry is just worshiping the wrong thing. The condemnation of idolatry and hence of any way of life that is inconsistent with God's concern for justice, morality, and order. This judgment is against the gods, but by implication, it's against all who serve them all who love them and whose lives are characterized then by them. The judgment of God here is death. And Christ City, I want to just say something to you. It it feels heavy. That's heavy. But it's not wrong. I think you know it's not wrong. We live in a time in society when cries for justice are all around us. We live in a time in society when sometimes we even hear radical cries for bloodshed for justice. We live in in a world where Hollywood makes a lot of money off of revenge films. And we love to have these revenge fantasies. We watch the revenge films. And they may be extreme, but the cry for justice they speak to in our human hearts, it's not wrong. It's not wrong. Some of the most disturbing dreams that I've ever had as an adult, there's one I can think of in particular, where I dreamt that something terrible had happened to my family. Somebody had perpetuated a great evil against my family. I woke up. I was so upset. And I wasn't just like, I wasn't like, oh, I'm so sad. I was, I was furious. And I got up. I couldn't sleep. I had to get up out of my bed. I walked around my house. I had to calm down after my dream because my heart's cry was to defend the ones that I love, to protect the ones that were weak, that I'm responsible for. The cry for judgment and for justice is not wrong. But if we're honest and we think of injustice, the need for justice, we usually think of other people, right? We see it out here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Judgment, great, but over there. (laughs) And we don't include ourselves in that circle, right? Justice Justice against those out here, but not inside. We tend to think that arson isn't that bad. After all, I mean, I've not murdered anybody. I haven't done the things that I dreamt about. So I'm good. I'm good, right? I haven't done the big wrong things. But according to the Bible, we're responsible to God for injustice, both because of the things that we've done that he forbids, 
but also because of the things that he commands that we've left undone. And we see that in this psalm, right? Because how does God judge the false gods? Well, he points out the evil that they've done, this injustice in favoring the wicked. He also then commands them to do something that they've not done. It says, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And we usually look at that and we say, phew, I've not done the bad stuff. I'm good. But Christ City, what difference would it make in this world if you loved your neighbor? If you actually loved your neighbor, think of the person who lives next to you. If you loved, if you cared about your neighborhood, the people that you walk past in the street, you know, these are things that the Bible commands us to do. To not just look to our own interests, but to look to the interests of others. To not just consider our own needs, but to look to their needs. And we're all guilty because we've left a lot of things undone. And the remarkable teaching of the Bible is that God's judgment in the divine counsel, it applies to all of us because the problem of injustice and evil in this world, it starts in our hearts. It resides here. As much as we'd like to point to all the wicked people out there, like it's their fault, get rid of them and we're good. No, the, the Russian novelist and critique, uh, famous critic of Soviet Russia named Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he had it right when he wrote this. Look at this quote. He said, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. If only that were the case. But look at how he says this. It's profound. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? See, if you probe the problem of evil and injustice in this world, you find that at the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Ground zero of injustice starts here, in this room. That's pretty bleak. It's a heavy, it's a heavy section. It's a heavy psalm. And yet there's so much hope. This psalm is actually full of, of hope. I want you to look at the last point with me, hope in verse 8. In verse 8, it says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. And you might think, wait a second, Brandon, you just said there's lots of hope here, and I see this cry for God to judge all the earth. What are you talking about? How is this hope? Well, it's hope because the Psalms portraying a day when the false gods don't rule anymore. Imagine the map. It's picturing a time when God comes up and the false gods are toppled over all that map and God takes his place as rightful ruler of humankind and over our hearts so that we are oriented him to him in love. So we obey him and delight to live under his rule and reign. And Christ City, that is good news, to live under the reign of God in this way. A time when wickedness is judged when God himself wipes away the tears from our eyes and gives compassion to the vulnerable. See, the hope of this psalm, the hope that we're talking about, is the hope that God is the kind of God who himself will crush our false gods. It's a hope that he'll crush our false gods and lead us to himself instead. 
That's the hope of this psalm. So how's he going to do that? How has he done that? Well, there's a lot more of the Bible after Psalm 82, if you're looking in the Bible. What we see in the rest of the Bible is that he's done this not by destroying us in our false worship, but by wooing us to himself through Jesus. He shows us who he really is as God, worthy of all of our worship and praise as he reveals himself to us in Jesus. And in that place, he doesn't just pour out justice upon us that we deserve. No, he's willing to take his own justice upon his shoulders to give us forgiveness and to work on our hearts so that we're changed to become like him. Look at John 3.17. I love this passage. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. It's not why Jesus came. Not to condemn the world. Not to, not to just crush us in our injustice and our idolatry. No, he came in order that the world might be saved through him, John says. He came in mercy and compassion that we would be saved through Jesus. And years after this psalm was written, this is what happened. Jesus was born. The God-man, fully God and fully man, took his place in history and came to show us who God really is. If you want to know who God is, what he looks like, look to Jesus. The God of the Bible that reveals himself in his mercy and compassion, he became 3D for us. He became human in order that we might see him as he truly is in the person of Jesus. And in the Gospels, we read these stories about Jesus, these four Gospel stories in the middle of your Bible. These are stories where the poor and the suffering people, not the rich and the powerful and the oppressors, the poor and the suffering, they're the ones that run to Jesus. They flock to him. They can't get enough of Jesus as he gives compassion to them. We see in these stories a God who gives the vulnerable, poor, and oppressed, he who defends them, a God who rebukes these religious folks that, that, that took the worship of, of God and made it into just a, a series of laws that didn't care at all about the real vulnerability and suffering of people. And Jesus rebukes all of that. I don't want anything to do with that. And shows us this God who cares in his mercy for our suffering. He's a God who shows us that he welcomes the outcasts. Some of my favorite stories in the Bible are times like when Jesus at Simon's house and all of these sinners, all the people that were rejected from all the surrounding area and who the religious people, the people that were supposed to govern the right worship of Yahweh, how, how they're so upset because these people are coming to Jesus in droves. They want to be with him. The most sinful person full of the greatest shame wants to be with this Jesus because of his mercy because of his compassion, because of his love. You know, the prophet Isaiah spoke about Jesus and said this. He said, he's somebody who a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. This morning, maybe you feel like a piece of grass that's been bruised and you're teetering on the edge of falling over. Or maybe you feel like you're the candle that's about to go out. Jesus shows us a God who is compassionate and kind and is with us in that place. He's not going to snuff you out. He's not going to crush you and knock you over. He's nothing like us in our injustice. And in Jesus, yes, God renders the judgment of death to the wicked. But not only that, in Jesus, God himself went to the cross 
In Jesus, we see a God who is humble and courageous, who is bold, who is self-sacrificial to the point of saying, look, I get the need for justice. It's my universe. It's my justice that made it. But I will stand in the place of the human beings that deserve my justice. And I will take the judgment for their sin, for their participation in the injustice in this world upon my own shoulders. In the person of Jesus, so they can be forgiven. So they can be transformed through my resurrection life. Romans 6.23 says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Christ City, here's the question. Who or what this morning are you worshiping? Who or what are you worshiping? You know, there's no one like Jesus. There's nothing you can worship that will so shape you so powerfully, so make you new like the worship of Jesus. You know, um, in 2020, in, in January, the beginning of the month, when my daughter first began having seizures and, and you know, the first round of, of going in the ambulance to the hospital and then staying in the room with her and not knowing what was going on. In that place, God gave me a passage of scripture. In that place, as I was broken and scared and didn't know what was going on, the passage of scripture he gave me was 27, Psalm 27 verse 4. This passage of scripture says this, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And what he was showing me was that the most precious thing of all I still had, to worship the Lord, to know who he was through Jesus Christ. And in his kindness, he was using the suffering that my family was going through to crush my idols, to cause me to become a better father, a better husband, Lord willing, a better pastor, because even my love for good things that took his place weren't producing in me the things that were best. He's showing that he alone was worthy to sit on that place in my heart. Christ City, some of you guys are going through this right now where the idols of your heart are being crushed by God. And it feels painful. It's hard. But in his kindness, God is doing a good work in you. He's bringing healing and health as he draws you to Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, he welcomes us to worship him. And if you accept his mercy and grace, he will change you. He will work his resurrection life in you and make you the different kind of person that you need to be in this world. You are what you love. You become like what you worship. So who or what this morning is at the center of your heart? Will you pray with me? Father, there is no one like you. Oh, Father, there's no one like you. I, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to see Jesus. When you have shown yourself to us, you've shown us that we don't have to worship the false gods of our hearts. Father, would you compel us with a vision of the beauty of Christ that would transform us, that would take us from from who we are in our sin and make us a new creation in Jesus. 
full of your life. By your Holy Spirit, work this miracle in our hearts, I pray. I pray for this congregation, Lord, bless them. Fill them with the spirit of Jesus. Turn their eyes right now to see you, to delight in you above everything else. Help them to have the grace. Give them the grace to turn away from all that is false that they are worshiping. In Jesus' name, amen.